Well, folks, welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. This is Lisa Anderson here with you with a little preview. Later on for our inbox, we have a listener who's asking, how do you process when your significant other stops all communication after your breakup? And you had a pretty long-term relationship. Well, I'm going to answer that question. And then for our culture segment, Dr. Bob Paul is the leader of Focus on the Family's Hope Restored program, which has saved thousands of marriages, many of which were close to divorce. And so we're back for part two of our conversation with him, and you will probably be surprised at how much it has to do with you as a single person. Okay, here we are for our roundtable. We are going to have a conversation with Georgia, Alex, and John about situationships. Um, we're going to define that a little bit, but welcome, team. Hey. hey. Hello. Hey. Good to have you. Okay. This is what we decided that this is what you have often heard me say here at Boundless. And if you read the Daily Manifesto, I mentioned it in there. I think I might have a whole chapter on it. I kind of call it the friendlationship. But... Um, Victoria on our team was talking about how this is very much a term that is bandied about in the culture. And I think when it comes to more secular environments between non-Christians, you know, the bar crowd, college campuses, whatever, the situationship is described um, in a few different ways and actually has maybe some caveats to it that we wouldn't think of often as Christian young adults. And so um, we want to bring it to the the forefront here and talk about it. But if anyone also wants to say a friend relationship, we can talk about that too, because that's going to have implications here as well. Now, I will start out with um, a short definition. Uh, basically, if we look at a definition of a situationship, it is often defined as a casual, undefined, commitment-free relationship or that space between a committed relationship and something that's more than a friendship. Well, who in the world understands what that is? Like more than a friendship? <laughs> What's a committed relationship? How committed? Whatever. So I think all of this is um, confusing to us. But let's put it down into practical terms. So speaking of whether it's yourself having been through one or friends who have been through them or you've been borderline caught in one, what would you say a situationship slash friend relationship looks like in the everyday? Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. There you go. And that's the end. So basically, <laughs> I would just define it as you kind of said before, where it's just this middle ground of there is something more happening, but nobody is saying anything and it feels like there's so much more going on um but nobody's taking a hold of it and so you're just kind of like in this limbo i would call it like friendship slash dating limbo where you're like we're not really pursuing each other in a romantic sense but we're definitely pursuing each other in a non-friendship sense okay yeah it feels like and this is just an image that came to my mind when you get on a plane and the plane isn't moving but then it starts taxiing on the mm -hmm. runway it's not in the air yet, but it's like in motion. Mm -hmm. So it's that stage of a relationship that feels like, okay, things are progressing. We might actually like take off in this mm -hmm. image. It would be actually dating each other and being in a relationship, mm -hmm. but just staying there and just taxiing on the oh. runway, staying, being in a plane, like staying on the ground, uh, but never flying. So what that looks like is like, uh, two people texting a lot, uh, mm -hmm. maybe going out to eat secrets being shared, mm -hmm. uh, maybe a little intimate, you know, family memories, you know, one-on-one -on -one conversations, things that would be dates, but there has never been a conversation 
defining the relationship. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, mine would be very similar to what you just said, Alex. And one word that I wrote down when thinking about this is really the word expectations, that somebody is making it blatantly obvious, hey, I want this to be more than a friendship. And I know even from personal experience, the times I've been in these types of situations, it's mostly been one-sided where I, I either was really interested in a girl but she wasn't interested in me or vice versa. The girl was really interested in me, but I wasn't interested in her. And so somebody's clearly letting on, yes, I want this to progress further, but the other person's just kind of keeping it at bay mm -hmm. at times and maybe isn't coming out and saying, no, we're just friends. Okay. So what I, I can't imagine anyone saying like, this is a relationship that I definitely want to be in. I mean, it just sounds like you find yourself in it or you start out as something else and then someone wants something more. Why do you think people get all wound up in these? Like, how do they start without people just saying like, let's put this on the table and be honest and we're friends. And why is there so much ambiguity? Would you say? I think and you might get to this later, but I think it lies in gender roles and the unspoken assumptions and expectations that both genders have when it comes to pursuing a relationship. From my experience, guys typically have the responsibility of initiating, hey, I want to take you out on a date. This is a date. I want to date you. Let's get in a relationship type of thing. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of Christian women are waiting for guys to take that step. And I think with guys... There's a bit of choice anxiety and there's a bit of always wanting, uh, always wanting a door out and a, not really wanting to fully commit because it's, you know, difficult to. Mm -hmm. And so I think where these relationships happen, I think a lot of times it's where one of the two people, mostly the guy in my experience, is keeping a door open mm -hmm. to exit and not commit. Okay. Now that's a good point that you make, Alex. Do you think he's keeping the door open because he's not convinced that he's really into her or... Do you think there are guys that just kind of figure, well, I'm going to start with this hangout business because mm -hmm. I don't know how she feels and I'm not willing to really say anything definitive until I can assure that I'm going to get a positive response? The The situation that I've been in was the latter. So okay. mine was uh, I liked a girl for about a year. I was waiting for like a clear green light uh, mm -hmm. and we texted every day. We like hung out a good bit. And then after a year of being there, I asked her out, went on a date. At the end of the date, she was like, I'm sorry if I led you on, but like, I don't want to continue this. And I was like, oh, I should have just asked you out like <laughs> months ago, save myself this time. Mm -hmm. uh, but and I know all the texting. I think, right. <laughs> <laughs> wasted all my minutes on you. <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, but I think more often than that, I think it is a guy not knowing if he really likes the girl. Because mm -hmm. I think so much in our culture is like deciding like, okay, let me look inside myself. Do I feel a particular way about this girl that justifies me, you know, getting in a relationship with her? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, you know, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? So when guys look inside, oh, do I feel enough? Oh, this thing bothers me. And also I have all these other girls in my class. Maybe it's not the best. Maybe I'll just stay in this comfortable place where I get all the benefits emotionally of a relationship mm -hmm. but none of the actual consequences of that okay other thoughts on how we get into these snaggles <laughs> oh that's a good word alex uh i was gonna say i think no one ever intentionally gets into them 
Um, especially coming from like, I think the Christian standpoint, I think nobody ever intentionally falls into a situation ship. I think it starts out as a friendship and then there's chemistry that's beyond friendship. And then it's kind of this like tug of like, well, we talk way more than I talk to any other guy or Mm -hmm. vice versa. Mm -hmm. I talk to you way more than any other girl, but I don't know that I want to make this into a full relationship. And I would say even more at least in my experience, and sadly, I'm very experienced in these, (laughs) woof, we hate to see it, but I would say that it it, more often than not, it has felt as though the guy wanted a different option, um, and that it was, I get to have all of this, yeah, all the benefits of this, but I want other options, and I don't want to commit because then what if something else better comes along and then I'm committed to this girl? And that's kind of how it's felt and how I've seen it play out, um, three times out of four. <laughs> so, so it's just kind of, uh, to me, it kind of feels like somebody is always like, there could be something better, but I know that this is good. So I'm just going to stay in this middle ground so that I don't have to say no to potential other like relationships. Okay. I think a lot of it too is also just not making your intentions clear. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's something that I've definitely been guilty of in the past. I remember a couple of years ago, I was having a conversation uh, with a coworker here and she told me, she said, when you ask a girl out, use the word date. Hmm. And that's something that I think a lot of guys will kind of passively skirt around or beat around the bush is they'll just say, Hey, you want to hang out sometime? Typically, if a guy is interested, the girl will pick up on it, mm-hmm. <laughs> but he won't make his intentions clear. Yeah. And the more you make your intentions clear, the less likely you're actually going to get in a situation where where you fall into this type of pitfall. Yeah. I feel like there are a lot of invitations to disc golf teams that really are dates in disguise. <laughs> it's always like, want to play trend, disc yes. golf? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, how many people do I know that have ended up in these disc golf situations? And then it's like, that was a pseudo date. He was trying to oh, ask yeah. you out on a date. Wow. That's pretty oh, yeah. funny. So, so <laughs> that said... Um, it's so fascinating. I mean, obviously, we've been talking here about how we, you know, how we get into these. I was going to say, too, that it seems like, and this is maybe just a, a female perspective. You guys can tell me if, if guys think like this, too. Um, Georgia kind of touched on this, the idea of like, well, I might like this person, but they're not asking me out. So... I want to spend time with them anyway. So I'm going to settle for this like pseudo relationship Mm -hmm. and kind of just this nothingness like it is just I mean I'm I'm not stupid this really isn't anything they treat a lot of people this way but it puts me in their orbit and Mm -hmm. so why don't I just do it and then they're gonna if I do it enough they're gonna see how really amazing I am and then it's gonna become something else I mean I'm not sure why we tell ourselves that do you guys have any insights on that? Yeah, Georgia, why don't you tell about it since you've done it three out of four times? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, I mean, I won't go into too much detail unless you want me to. But I will say (laughs) I will say this, that I do think it's about inherently we want to be loved. And I think as women, we want to be desired. So when you feel desired, even if it's not the full extent of what I would say dating and then marriage is supposed to look like, it's like, okay, well, it's good enough. Someone cares about me enough to text me and call me all the time, and we eat dinner together all the time. But yeah, okay, we're not holding hands, and he has no intention of marrying me, but 
at least I get to spend physical time with him and just be near him. And that's enough. And sometimes, yeah, I feel like we kid ourselves into believing that that is good enough, but that's not, that's not what God intended for us. And it's not healthy and it's not good enough. Um, and we shouldn't be settling. But I think as women, it's easy to kid yourself into saying like, that is, that's the bar. The bar is so high, but I'm like, no, the bar is so low and (laughs) and we should be wanting him to reach so much higher than just we're in this middle ground. Mm -hmm. I think another interesting situation that guys have that I've experienced is in friendships with women, there is this line that once crossed can never be Mm -hmm. retracted. And that is the confession of feelings, the asking out on a date and The last thing that a lot of guys want, I can speak for myself, is to make a girl feel uncomfortable because she's like, oh, we were just friends. Oh, you like me. Oh, I don't like that. Now, every time we hang out, it's going to be weird. So I think some of these situations could genuinely be a guy with good intentions that just doesn't know if the girl likes him back, doesn't know if there's a full green light there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And maybe the girl's in that situation where she's feeling like, well, I'm just like hanging out with him all the time. I'm like treating him like we're dating and like we're going out. But from the guy's perspective, he could genuinely be interpreting that as like, oh, crap, I'm in the friend zone. Mm-hmm. Oh, she's talking to me mm-hmm. all the time. I feel like oh, I, I missed my chance. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so there's like this weird like it's just it's fixed by what you said, John, mm-hmm. making your intentions clear. Mm-hmm. Hey, I don't know what this is. Like, do you like me? Mm-hmm. Simple as that. And if that friendship changes, the friendship's going to change anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, as you get older, if you do get married to someone else, you're not going to be friends with that person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you make your intentions clear and they like you, you might get married to them. So the relationship yeah. is going to change in a good way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And only thing I would add to that is it's if you make the mistake of internalizing your feelings constantly, there's a very good chance they're going to get stronger and stronger. Mm-hmm. And if you don't come out and admit them, mm-hmm. chances are you may be building this whole narrative in your head. Um, I may have been guilty of that a few times, <laughs> yeah, yeah. more than once, but building this whole narrative in, uh, in your head that's actually just not even reality. I remember years ago, um, there was a girl I liked for quite a while, and I had even talked to her about it, and she had admitted to me that, no, hey, we're just friends. And I finally, um, months down the road, told a good friend of mine about this and he knew about it and he just finally looked me square in the eye and he's like she does not feel the same way about you that you do about her Hmm. and I needed to hear that because Mm -hmm. it's so easy a lot of times if you're just keeping it to yourself and you're thinking oh maybe I could change maybe Mm -hmm. this could change with time or maybe Mm -hmm. I can change the narrative if I'll just wait this thing out a lot of times that's not the case Mm -hmm. and that's why we need other people in our lives to be able to speak into really just for lack of a better term, reality. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and a good point to that, John, is then, you know, that's where we have to trust God, that if she's meant to come back into your sphere, God can bring her back into your sphere. You mm-hmm. don't have to go chasing after her being weird or fabricating situations or trying to ask her like seven different ways, hoping that one will take or something yeah, like right. that. Um, that's so true. Kind of bouncing back to where Alex was with the whole friendship, like messing up the friendship thing. It kind of, you know, begs the question, and I'm telling on myself because I've totally done this. Why are we so into these friend gangs? Like, I remember (laughs) on the Boundless show years ago um, talking to someone and we were having this conversation around 
like this insistence that guys and girls have to be such good friends. And I feel like it's, you know, it's one thing about like being honoring of one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, serving together within the church, being acquaintances. Hi, we're at the same birthday party. But we literally like have these friend gangs where like to Alex's point, it's like, you get so weird because you feel like you don't want to try to move something further because it will quote mess up the friendship if it doesn't work out. And people are so clinging to these friendships. Like what are you hoping to do with these friendships? Because once you get married, you can't just be friends with these people in the same way you were. But what do you think is the allure of that? And why are we so okay with that in the church? Mm. I don't know. Cause I had one of those (laughs) in college too, like, like freshman, sophomore year. I can think of, I can name them, Mm -hmm. the people in my friend group and it fell apart. Not in an unhealthy way, but like it did. Mm -hmm. And that's good. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe, for me, it was my first time truly away from home. I was like a 24 hours drive away from my family. And so at college, this was my family. So it's almost like mm-hmm. there's such high stakes because this is your community and you don't want to ruin that. Mm-hmm. I think that's the only explanation that makes sense. But I don't I don't really know. Mm-hmm. I don't know why we care so much. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I honestly think this is something that gets talked about so much where people are just like, I am such good friends with the opposite sex. Like, I, I've just always been friends with guys, and I've always been friends with girls. And I'm like, okay, good. That's awesome. <laughs> good for you. But as for me and my house, I'm like, I, I'm not going to say that I have not caught feelings with a majority of the guys that if, like, if when I was in college that, like, it, there wasn't one guy in the group that I didn't catch feelings for. And it's just like, that just happens. Like, that is, sorry, True. that's reality Same of having us, flesh. Yeah. Like, that is just the, that's just the facts. And so it's just like, it's okay that your bestie is not a dude. That's a, that's totally okay. Like, you're not some horrible girl because you don't have a bestie that's a dude a lot of times it's just about holding your hands open with relationships period whether they be romantic or whether they be friendships because i think that that is something that we cling on so tightly to because it feels nice to have the assurance of friendship um but we're not always promised like you're gonna have this bestie forever Mm -hmm. um and that's okay i mean you may have certain besties forever and ever and ever and so forth but you also may not and you also, for sure, are not going to have that guy bestie forever mm-hmm. because one of you is going to get married. And like Alex said, if y'all are homies, when y'all married, you need to stop. That, yeah. <laughs> that is not yeah. good. Okay. <laughs> it's tough to make a blanket statement because in a big group like that, it's hard to read what everybody's intentions are. Mm-hmm. Some people may genuinely be coming just to make friends. Some may genuinely be coming because, hey, I'm searching for a spouse. And (laughs) when the group is starting to gel, it honestly takes a little while, and then Mm -hmm. people come and go. So Mm -hmm. I I have been in some group settings where I was genuinely friends with um, females. I'm thinking of two female friends in college right now. We were just friends, and that was great. Mm -hmm. There was no mutual interest. And part of what made... um, those friendships so fulfilling is we didn't do anything more than just friendship stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, We would go apple picking together in groups. We would even host college radio shows together and it was just fun, Mm -hmm. but there was no expectation that we're in this to see if we may really like each other because we didn't. But there were a couple times where I would catch feelings for somebody and 
The sooner I made that clear either to a close friend or to the girl, the better it was. The more I internalized it and just kept it to myself, mm-hmm. the less healthy it was. So that kind of, you're you're starting to answer the next question that I had, um, which I'd love to get your thoughts on everyone. And that is, okay, first of all, how then can you even be friends with the opposite sex without it getting weird? Like, is that even possible? At what level should that be at? And then two, what are some of those warning signs of like, this is kind of getting not cool, you're starting to get attached, you're starting to get, you might be spending too much time with this person. I mean, you're, <laughs> if your grandma thinks you're engaged, that could be a, a sign, you know, whatever. But what would you guys say, help us all out here for how to navigate that? I think I'm thinking of three things. I think the first thing to try and combat this before you even get started is to really focus on when you spend time with the opposite sex to do it in groups to do it in friendship oriented Mm -hmm. situations where you're not Mm one-on-one i think that's the biggest help Mm -hmm. and also when it comes to communication if you are consistently communicating with someone from the opposite sex consistently i think that's another situation where you should probably hey let's let's maybe talk in a group chat with a bunch of other people but if it's one-on-one and it's Mm -hmm. consistent Mm -hmm. that's probably against the rules. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is you have a responsibility and you have the power to define the relationship no matter what gender you are. Mm-hmm. So as the guy, you have the front foot of determining what your relationship looks like with members of the opposite gender. As far as girls go, if you're in that situation that we've been talking about where a guy is kind of hanging out with you, kind of maybe giving you some signals, but not taking the first step, you also have power to step back you Mm -hmm. can communicate so clearly to that guy and say hey i like you it seems like you like me but you're not doing anything i don't feel respected in this i don't think we should talk anymore Mm -hmm. that might you know give him a slap around the face and he might actually respect (laughs) you for that (laughs) and move forward or Mm -hmm. you might lose him as a friend but how good of a friend really was he you know yeah Uh, and then um, i think the third thing is you can't really go wrong by being honest you know Mm -hmm. as long as you lay out all the cards on the table God's going to sort it out. Mm -hmm. And it's better to have the intentions be fully known than ambiguous and nebulous. And I know it's easier to stay in that nebulous area, but it's more harmful and emotionally difficult down the road. Yeah. That's why I said, I mean, this is like, here's a word picture. If you are walking around the office with toilet paper hanging out of your pants, wouldn't you want someone to tell you? (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, you would. Like, you don't want that to not happen before you go on a date. Or yeah, do yeah. do something super important, go in a meeting with your boss or whatever. So, yeah, sometimes pulling off the Band-Aid has mm-hmm. to happen. I think there are definitely some warning signs um, from my experience. I think it's definitely getting too serious if his family members are calling you and expecting you to be there at big events that happen in his life. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, why? Mm-hmm. We're not dating. Mm-hmm. So if family members are involved and they think that, like there's something serious going on. It's like, wait a dang second. If something serious is going on, I'm sure not aware of it. Also, if he's the first person you think to call for like exciting news mm, or to get to mm-hmm. get or in vice versa, if you're a dude and your first person you want to call is your girly pup, but you haven't asked her out. Yeah, don't do that. Because if the first person you want to call is not if it's not your bae, like, why? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And I would do that. Like, I'm guilty of that, having done that, where the first person I called was this guy, and we would talk for hours on end, and I would be like, oh, this is awesome. And then I was like, wait, a dang second, it's not that awesome. <laughs> um, so I think it's just being aware of, like, 
why are you calling this person first? Why does That's everybody good. think that you guys mm-hmm. are dating? Mm-hmm. Um, why are you always looking at each other across a room, but then nothing else is happening other than goo goo eyes like yeah. that's that those are some warning signs and if you're starting to notice that uh, if you're a girl if you're a lady mm-hmm. you say something because at this point if he has not said something he will not and yeah. you should just kindly say hey like at this point in time seems like we're spending a lot of time together why are we doing that yeah if it's not going to be more. If you need to submit a photo for something and you have to crop him out of every single one of your options, <laughs> yeah. that could be problematic. If he says if he says that you're a very important woman in his life and that you make him better, but you're not his spouse <laughs> or his girlfriend, okay. yeah, that's, that's – no, draw the line, okay? okay? Draw the line. Junior year of college was kind of a real breakthrough year for me in this area because at that time – me and several of the guys that I lived with would be praying together on an almost nightly basis. Mm -hmm. And it got very, very raw and vulnerable among the guys sometimes. Mm -hmm. At the same time, me and a really good friend of mine, we, a female friend um, named Alyssa, we were hosting a college radio show together. And so I had both of these going on at the same time. And she and I just made it very clear from the beginning she was like a sister to me mm-hmm. and but we would do things in public settings we would work together and it was great but when i came when i really needed somebody to talk to i had the group of guys i could go to as well That's good. Mm-hmm. and they were really kind of if i really needed to share something personal they were like the safety net mm-hmm. um but she and i were friends and one thing that actually did help a lot is um the college i attended we were not allowed to go in girls dorms mm-hmm. so there was a, an automatic boundary that actually was very very helpful for me that prevented a lot of temptation that i could have gotten into otherwise mm-hmm. um i mean wherever God calls you to go to school, go mm-hmm. there and he'll provide the grace to go. Mm-hmm. But for me personally, that was a huge safety net for yeah. sure. So good thought you guys. Thank you so much. I mean, my goodness, it's like we just got the conversation started, but I appreciate you weighing in on this. We'll have to yeah, do a part two. Thanks for having us. <laughs>
Well, folks, we are here this week for our culture segment. And if you listened last week, you know that I told you this was going to be a two-parter. And so we're in part two of a conversation with Dr. Bob Paul from Hope Restored, our Focus on the Family Marriage Institute here. He is vice president of that. Um, He is a licensed professional counselor, and he is one of the founders of this program, uh, even pre-Focus, and then now part of Focus on the Family. And we learned so much from him last week. If you have not listened to last week, you need to go back and listen to that. We'll let you listen to this now. You can go back later, whatever. But at the same time, um, I think you're going to benefit from all of the stuff that he has to share. And so, Dr. Bob Paul, welcome back. Oh, so great to be here. So fun to have you. So I promised people at, you know, last week that we'd be talking about a few other concepts around relational health and what it means uh, to kind of own our own stuff and move forward in our relationship with God and with others in a way that will really allow us to be our best selves and, and show up and love others well. And I want to kick this week off with... Um, basically with an illustration that you shared when I attended um, Hope Restored. And so those of you who didn't listen last week, I actually went as an observer and got to learn so much um, from observing couples going through these intensives. And uh, you talked about what you actually opened up one of our segments or one of our sessions by saying how much you hate it when you go to weddings and they do the unity candle, which, you know, people are just going to be offended by because there are people listening that did a unity candle. But tell us what your thoughts are behind that, because I thought it was so good. Well, first of all, I mean, I spend my life helping people unravel the mess they get themselves in, in their relationships. And one of the reasons is because all of us have been set up. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've been taught so many things that actually uh, we're taught it as if it's truth and we're taught principles and ideas that can't work and we don't know it because we've been taught by well-meaning people who are not trying to mess us up which is why we wrote nine lies um, which I know you talked about last week Uh, we wanted to flesh some of those out so I actually got to the point now where as much as I love marriage I hate weddings. I'm with a passion because I'm sitting there in the pew listening to what's being said. And I, they say things and I want to stand up and start shouting, no, you're setting them up to need me. You know, at times I feel like at the end, I want to go give them my card and say, hey, you might want to hold on to this. You're probably going to need it someday, which would be such a downer, I mean, a That'd wet blanket bad. at a wedding. So, yeah. so I manage that. And some of the things that they, they show up there, I know are setups. So I hate the unity candle and I hate it with a passion because, you know, all of us know we've seen the ceremony before. You got the three candles, the two little ones that represent the individuals and the big one that rep- represents the, the marriage. So, of course, what happens is the, the two people getting married usually are the ones that light the candles, one representing each of them. And then they go and they light the center candle. And then what do they do? They blow them out. That <laughs> makes me crazy. I mean, if and it's it's horrible theology. So a lot of people don't realize this, but of there, when you get married, you actually add a third entity. There is the husband, there is the wife, and there is the relationship. But of those three, which are eternal? Well, the it's reality is, yeah, reality <laughs> is Jesus made it perfectly clear in two of the gospels. You will not be married in heaven, even if you were married on earth, Mm -hmm. but you'll both hopefully be there. The two, the people are eternal, Mm -hmm. not the relationship. And the symbolism that we're sharing there is that 
you stop focusing on the individuals, the eternal parts, and you put all your attention on the temporary temporal part. That's terrible theology. The relationship needs to support the people that are eternal, that are going on forever, Mm -hmm. not the other way around. So it's a symbolism that, that troubles me because it sets people up in the wrong place. And one of the greatest distinctives of Hope Restored and why I think we're so incredibly successful is that our model is person-centered. The well-being of the individual always takes precedence over the well-being of the marriage without exception because the people are what matters. Jesus came to die for people, not marriages. And if you lose the people for the sake of the marriage, you've lost everything. So for all of your listeners that are not married, that want to get married, we're imploring you to take seriously how much your well-being matters because you are going on forever. Mm -hmm. And the marriage, any marriage that you would get in, any relationship you're in, needs to be supporting and encouraging you to be the best version of you, whole and healthy in all ways. Yeah. Well, that passage that you shared is probably one of the most encouraging passages for singles because it levels the playing field. You know, we're often told even by the church that, you know, if we would just be completed through marriage and if we just, you know, we we're okay now, but you know, then God will eventually use us if we just get married. (laughs) And so I think it's such a great encouragement to us to know that, yeah, you know, my singleness isn't the biggest thing about me, nor is your marriage the biggest thing about you? And that just gives us really the motivation to to take a hard look at that. And so uh, that's great. So I do, that kind of uh, brings up a question that, you know, a, a term that's often bandied about in relationships and in counseling and especially in dating relationships and marriage relationships, and that is codependency. Mm. So what, tell us, Bob, what is codependency and how do you spot it in a relationship, especially if you're dating and it could be a bona fide red flag that you need to address on the front end. All right. So, of course, we're throwing around the term codependency, which as a psych guy is is first class psychobabble. Mm-hmm. OK, so so like let, let, no one ever really understands. Yeah, right, it. Let yeah. me go ahead and make it flesh it out, because I am a recovering codependent, mm. card carrying codependent who by God's grace. I didn't want to grace, say that, but I was hoping you'd. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. By God's <laughs> grace, I married someone who did have a codependent bone in her body. And, um, and, and it broke my heart. It made me think she didn't love me because she had such a strong sense of self and my romantic fantasies were so unappealing to her. Matter of fact, they would, they would make her skin crawl. So one of the classic ones that I would, would say when, I, when, when we got married, I'd say, you know, it would be so awesome, Jenny, if we found ourselves uh, stranded on a deserted tropical island, just the two of us, you know, and we had everything we need in this beautiful idyllic setting. And she looked at me and she goes, you mean just me and you? I said, yes, yeah. yuck. And I went, oh, she doesn't. If she loved me, she would be so attracted to that. And it was because I had this image that that the goal was to just kind of blend into this this unit, you know, and, and we the two become one as if it was the number one, which it doesn't mean that at all. And um and that we would we would just be there to, you know, I had needs, she has needs, my job is to meet her needs, hers is to meet mine, and then we could live together in perfect code and bliss, which is Mm -hmm. messed up because the reality is Jenny does not complete me. Mm. I am completed by God. Mm. He is my completer. I am dependent on him. Can't, you know, that that silly romantic song from the 70s that some of your listeners may have heard, can't live if living is without you. And it's being (laughs) sung to this romantic 
partner. And that is so codependently disgusting. Mm-hmm. It makes me cringe. If I was singing that to God, it at least makes sense. Can't live if living. <laughs> I can actually really live without Jenny. And she can live without me. And I don't need Jenny. But guys, love is never about need. Love is about desire. I desperately desire to be with my buddy Jenny and live that friendship out with my journeying partner as long as God would see fit. But I I can be whole and healthy with or without Jenny. I don't need her to be a whole person. But I don't want to do life without her. Uh, And it's my desire to be in relationship with her that is the essence of my deep, passionate love for her, not my need. Hmm. Okay. So contrast that then with what a biblical oneness is. Like, how is that different then? Yeah. And one of the problems for oneness for our culture and people who speak English is that we've got multiple uses of the word one, and it makes it very confusing. Um, I say this to, to married groups that I speak to all the time, and I'm looking at them say, if you mistakenly think that oneness means the number one, if I look around this room, I'm looking at a bunch of oneness failures because I see two in every single one of these couples, okay? Um, We are different by design, and differences are never the problem in marriage because they they were created by God for each of us, on purpose, with purpose. The problem in relationships is not knowing how to value and adequately utilize those differences. But every relational team is enhanced by the differences when they're valued and utilized. It is, you know, irreconcilable differences as a cause for marriage is ridiculous in my mind. That is, that is absolutely ridiculous. So oneness is actually not meant to mean same. Then why one as the same? We can't pull that off. We don't want to pull that off. One means unity. You, same, one in spirit and purpose. We are united toward a similar goal. So in our case, Jenny and I are both committed to being increasingly conformed to the image of Christ. We have that in common. Two different people pooling our resources together, working, working well together toward those ends. I encourage her to be the fullest expression of Jenny, to spread her wings and soar. She encourages me to do the same, which of course at times... Each of us being the fullness of who we are is a little awkward for the other, kind of cramps each other's style a little bit, but that's the goal. The goal is the ultimate, is to make that possible so we can always be our best self, the fullest, not one drop less. And that's what it means to be one, one in spirit, one in purpose, not the same. Hmm. Okay. So then um, we have to bring into the equation and bring into the conversation sin, Okay, if we must. Downer, downer. Okay, (laughs) that sounded very inspirational. But now I want to talk about when people just drive you bonkers and they irritate you and they push your buttons and they... never. I know. I'm not talking about me, but there are other people, Bob, that need to hear this. Okay, so... I think this is so helpful for for people to understand how we affect other people in the case of conflict. People will say, and they've actually referred to it as a crazy cycle of Mm -hmm. like, all we do is fight and all we can't, we come back to the same place and we can't get out of this weird spin of just hurting one another. What, I mean, again, sin is at the root of it, but describe to us this process and why even Christians... (laughs) 
<laughs> get caught up in it. All right. So, Lisa, are you saying you want to actually get real here? I No, not too real, just <laughs> okay, moderately real. Okay, moderately real. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, yeah, so I, I, I sold the whole party line on differences being a blessing and all that, but the reality is sometimes they are a royal pain in the rear end. Yeah. And, you know, Jenny and I are as different as night and day. I mean, if you look at the two of us, we don't look the same. We have never been mistaken for brother and sister. Mm-hmm. We have, we come from very different family backgrounds. Uh, we, we have very different temperaments. So as much as the differences are meant to be the blessing, oftentimes they bump and they create major conflict. In addition to that, we've all acquired wounds, bruises, you know, going, growing up in this stupid fallen world, you know, I mean, even if you had really amazing family and amazing parents, and yeah, you walk out the door and there's stupid people out there doing things that are hurtful and unkind and, and they're off and they're wounded and you're bumping into those kind of things and lots of stuff happens. And then my own stupidity and the fact that I can sin and I can hurt others that I might even care about, uh, all of that stuff is the reality of what we deal with. And we all have these buttons and they're like bruises. But most of us, when they're not hurting in the moment, are ignoring them or not aware of them. Uh, They're just there. It's like a control panel. And the people closest to you typically are the ones most inclined to push those buttons because they're the ones who have the greatest access. So Jenny will do something and it'll push one of my buttons and it feels like cause and effect. She did this. She said that. I felt this. She caused it. Mm -hmm. And what we've come to realize is since all of us have them, um, there's usually more going on than what meets the eye. The issue on the surface is rarely the real issue. There's more going on. And much of it, we come to virtually all of our relationships with most of our buttons intact. We bring them to the party and we often blame our spouse for what we're feeling. But when we take the time to recognize it and realize that the reason I reacted as big as I did was because I had a tender spot there and you said something or did something that touched that tender spot. And it made me feel a big feeling. And if I'm wise enough to realize the magnitude of what I'm feeling is more than just what you did or said, Hmm. that that actually is empowering. But where it gets weird, to your point, the crazy cycle, and I don't know how this happens or why it happens, but so I have a button that gets pushed and I naturally then will just knee jerk react because it hurt and I don't, I want to find some way to make it stop. What I do will almost without fail, if Jenny's near me, push one of Jenny's buttons. I'm not trying to push her button. It just does because she's got them too. And it's a weird dynamic. And then she'll react, which will then fairly commonly, almost naturally, push one of my buttons. And then I'll react, (laughs) which will push her button. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, we're off to the races. Mm -hmm. And all we're aware of is we're in this crazy cycle that feels miserable. We call it the reactive cycle. And um, and it happens all the time. And it explains why. And when we map this out for people, It explains why so often your conflict feels eerily familiar, even though you're going, well, wait a minute, we're not even talking about what we argued about last time. Why does it feel just like last time? Because there's this cycle going on under the issue that that really doesn't change much. And you plug virtually any issue in and you're going to have that happen. And as you know, it doesn't just happen with a spouse. Mm -hmm. It happens with siblings and parents, neighbors, people in the workplace, virtually anybody, because we're all walking around with those sensitivities and those buttons, those tender spots, and you're going to be 
interacting and bumping into them with just about anybody you come in contact with. Yeah, it's so true. I'm reminded of a um, a situation that my housemate, who's one of my dearest friends, and I got into. I came home from work one day and she was in our laundry room. We were preparing some, for some mutual uh, friends that were going to come and stay with us at our place. And, and uh, she's on her hands and knees in the laundry room scrubbing the floor. And instead of like, and she'll say this now, her thought was Lisa's going to come and see this and be like, oh my word, you are amazing. You are scrubbing the floor. What did I say? (laughs) Because I'm just so sensitive and amazing. I said, oh, I hope you're not using my shower scrub brush. And she was, and I flew off the handle because Bob... You don't use the scrub brush for my shower on the laundry room floor. There's a separate scrub brush. Are for you that. telling me there's a difference between washing your body and washing your there, floor? No, washing the shower walls. Oh, oh, oh. the shower walls. So it wasn't even. It's still a cleaning one. Oh, oh, oh. But my shower is cleaner than our laundry room yeah, floor. Yeah. So there's a separate scrub brush. Well, of course. Why did she not know this? Okay, so I'm like, I hope you're not using my scrub brush, my dollar fifty scrub brush that I use only for my shower. And she went off. And so <laughs> the scrub brush just flew out of her hand. Anyway, long story short, in circling back, this is such a learning because she said, Lisa, when you said that, it reminded me of growing up and my dad where I could never do anything right. And I was always a failure and I always never did the right thing. And I was always, and if I did the right thing, I wasn't doing it the right way or whatever. And that was just exactly, had nothing to do with scrub brushes, but that hit her wound. Well, then she got mad. And then of course I became a martyr because I'm like, I was being you. I was like, I'm just trying to be helpful to you because you're obviously don't even know how to clean a house appropriately or whatever. So it was just so bad. So truth that even the smallest seeming things can hit those buttons. And you guys did what what most people don't do. You took the time to pause and reflect and realize, you know, I really did react really strongly. It really did feel bad when you said that to me, but there really is more to the story. The reason it felt like it did, the reason it, it felt so bad was because um, I felt that way before. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of blah, 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 when my dad used to whatever. Mm-hmm. And all of us have that stuff going on. And most of us are unconscious of it. And it's a place where the enemy praise. Mm-hmm. He knows that and he knows just how to tweak us. He knows what our buttons are and he'll stand on my shoulder and say, Bob, are you going to let her talk to you that way? And I don't even realize it. And I was like, hey, wait. <laughs> and I'm off to the races and he played yeah. me and yeah. I played right into his hands. And when we start becoming aware of those things, it gives us at least the moment to pause and go, hmm, is this really all just about that? Or might there be just a little bit more going on here? Yeah. Well, obviously, I feel like so many people approach conflict where um, they assume that the only there's only two options for a solution. One is you like yell it out and then hope that eventually someone you guys are going to forget about it or else you stuff it and hope it'll go away. And of course, neither of those solutions work. And you actually have a construct of talking things out you kind of have two constructs one is um what head talks and heart talks or how to work talk and heart talk. work talk and heart talk yes how to actually have conversations around things that can be productive not only 
functionally productive, but emotionally productive. And can you just give us a little overview of the difference between those uh, two talks and how someone can kind of start a talk depending on the situation? Yeah, all sorts of different types of communication uh, methods out there, and they're good for different things. So, for instance, uh, a really common one is debate. I mean, debate is so well thought of that we have debate clubs and we teach people the, the art of debate and so forth. And the goal of debate, as most people realize, is to win. Mm-hmm. So we don't find that to be terribly f- useful in relationships, okay? It's, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's useful in a lot, of, a lot of scenarios, but not relationship. In relationship, we find two that are really valuable. Work talk is about getting stuff done. You know, the problems, um, uh, strategies that need to be developed, uh, things that need to be resolved, conflicts that need to be resolved. Work talk is the perfect tool for that. And we've got a a method we call the steps to a win-win that we use and we help people overcome differences and manage things that need to be solved and so forth. However, um, frequently, if there's strong emotions involved, if you try to resolve the issue, even with doing the tools to work talk really, really well, you will commonly trip and not be successful because um, what is often being ignored are the feelings. And we have strong feelings that haven't been fleshed out, haven't been given voice. And, um, and we're afraid that we've got to fight for our heart, fight for our feelings, and then we end up fighting each other. It's like we got to choose, and this is where another place the enemy wants us, choose my feelings or yours. I either give in and go your way, or I fight and I dig in my heels and say, no, I will not give in again this time. It's my turn. Um, and that's, that's exactly where the enemy wants us in relationship. He wants us to square off his adversaries. But relationships really with someone that you care about is a team sport and you win together or you lose together. And to do this effectively, if there are strong feelings involved or even moderately strong feelings involved, first, we recommend doing what we call heart talk, which is an attempt to flesh out the feelings and to value the feelings of each person. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when Jenny and I get into it, um, I want her to know that her feelings matter to me and I'm not going to choose my feelings over hers, but my feelings matter too. And I'm not going to choose my feelings over hers or her feelings over mine. Neither one of those. I don't want you choose, you lose. I'm going to choose us. So therefore, my feelings are going to matter or her feelings are going to matter. So what we do is we use our method called heart talk, which is just a simple step-by-step way to dial into each other's heart. And really good emotional communication always involves this exceptionally complex principle we call taking turns. How about that? You have a speaker and a listener. One person at a time shares their heart and the other person really dials in until they get it. And then the other person gets the chance to switch roles. You get a chance to have your heart heard. And then you now you got you fleshed it all out. And you say, okay, now I really get how you feel and what you want and what matters to you. And you know how I feel and what I want now. How do we then go into work talk and see if we can come up with a solution that both of us can feel good about? And I don't want to settle for any lesson that we never teach compromise in marriage. Never, never, never. Our God is a no compromise God. And and I don't want to compromise. I want solutions that both Jenny and I love and love where things are headed. Mm-hmm. And I will settle for nothing short of that. And it's it's successful almost always because our God is devoted. And he will take us there if we can just get the heck out of his way and 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 let him. Mm-hmm. So that's that's I mean, I don't know how much more detailed you want to get than yeah. that. But we've got in our books and stuff, we've got the step by step, the way you do it, 
But those are two very effective tools. Yeah, that's so good. And again, um, many of these principles are obviously, um, you know, through Hope Restored, which is a ministry of Focus on the Family and the um, Focus on the Family Marriage Institute. And we have, I said this last week, but there are several centers around the country where couples can go and do these intensives. And, uh, you know, we'll we'll have more information linked to that if you know of some someone specifically in that situation. I mean, I had mentioned last week that um, there are couples that have filed papers for divorce that decide that they will um, give this uh, give this a try. And in fact, I think, uh, what is the question that they have to answer, Bob, before they're allowed to participate? Yeah, the main question that everybody must answer yes to is, no matter how bad things are, if God was to work a miracle in your marriage, would you accept it? And the miracle could be the magnitude of the parting of the Red Sea for all we care. And the question is, if God did that, whether you believe it's possible, whether even you're, you're even positive you want it, if God was to intervene and take you to what we define success to be a relationship you both love and love where it's headed, would you go, okay, I'm in? And that's and if they answer no, well, they're not open to God doing a miracle, and we're not miracle workers, so we basically say, hey, stay home, you know, spare your time and money. Yeah. But if the answer is yes, we don't care how serious or desperate it is, we say, bring it on. Our God's a miracle worker, and he does it in our presence virtually every week. Yeah. And the super cool thing is, I know statistically um, you have reported, and I want you to restate this, that um, for couples that go through Hope Restored, and I do want to say, too, that there's a whole, there's an extent extensive follow-up program. Couples are checked in on by counselors and uh, just a really neat opportunity for them to share what they've learned, make sure they're doing okay, how are they applying principles, whatever. But um, give us that uh, uh, after two years, the, the couples that have gone through Hope Restored, how many are still together working on their marriages? Well, of the research that we've done, um, and, you, and keep in mind, as you said, the couples we get are the are oftentimes the ones at the end of the rope, divorce papers drawn, you know, last last hope. Mm-hmm. They basically say they show up on Monday, they leave on Thursday, they say on Monday morning, if we don't get a miracle by the end of Thursday, we're done. You know, no pressure. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. And then uh, uh, then we track them afterwards. And after two years, we found that at 80 percent of the couples that we've contacted are still together, which, given where they started, is a remarkable remarkable number. Yeah, that's amazing. So Bob, here's a question because again, we've addressed how Hope Restored, you know, these are largely couples that are certainly considering if not have determined to divorce. And I feel like a lot of people, we've talked about this here at Boundless, will say that this quote unquote biblical grounds for divorce. They get very hung up on what are biblical grounds for divorce. And they kind of tend to think of that as an automatic reason to bail on a marriage. What would be your response to that? Or what's your take on divorce and, and how, when to fight when you're just like, what, what do I do? Yeah, it's a, it's a really, really good question. Um, certainly one we're posed with all the time. You know, okay, so a couple of things I can say. Number one, uh, there's a couple of situations that God basically gives you a get-out-of-jail-free card. And he basically says that, you know, hey, you don't want to do this. Uh, you know, your spouse did that, whatever, you can bail. And basically the thing that I want to challenge people to consider is um, if they're really seeing Jesus as their Lord and Savior— and really do believe he's good and wants nothing but the best for us. 
do you really trust him to be the one calling the shots? And what does he say about it? Because it's amazing how many people come in with what we call, quote, biblical grounds for divorce who are not feeling led by the Lord to leave, even though there might be parts of their heart that certainly wants to hightail and run. Um, so I usually encourage them to to make sure before they decide whatever it is that they say, okay, God, what are you calling me to? What do you want me to do here? The other thing is that God really does give us quite a bit of latitude about what to do. And this is kind of controversially at, t- at times, but um, uh, let's say someone doesn't want to ask God and just wants to do their own thing, which we certainly don't recommend because, you know, you're thumbing your nose at the one who has your best interest in mind, thinking you're going to be better off to do it. But let's say you decide to divorce. Does that seal your fate and mean you're going to hell? Well, I don't see that. I mean, it seems to me that unless we turn our back on God, he never turns his back on us. And he doesn't recommend it, doesn't prefer it, does want our best interests served, but it doesn't relegate you to hell. And, and or, or eliminate your ability to walk with God. It just might mean you're not getting his best. Uh, you're really maybe uh, worth questioning. Where is God in your life? Is he the master? Is he the Lord? Is he calling the shots or not? So I would rather walk with people to those places than try and determine, should they divorce or not? Should they stay? Because it's not my place. I'm just a fellow journeyer trying to figure out how to make my way through this mess like everybody else is. But what I want to say is, please ask our Father in heaven, what do you say, God? Where are you calling me to? And if I do stay, are you going to be there with me? Can I count on you to walk this out with me? Hmm. Well, folks, there's so much more that we could say. And again, like I said, we're going to have some applicable links for you to find out more about this. And we'll probably talk through some of these principles, even on a practical level here at Boundless in the future. But in the meantime, um, I do want to recommend the book that um, Bob has co-authored with Greg Smalley, my boss, titled Nine Lies That Will Destroy Your Marriage and the Truths That Will Save It and Set It Free. Um, this is available to you as a gift from us for a gift of any amount at Boundless. Go to boundless.org, search for 770. That is this week's show. And uh, we will get a copy of this book to you if you just give a gift of any amount to Boundless off of that link. So give Give it a try. Bob, thank you so much for being part of this conversation. So many things we packed into these two weeks. Well, I think the world of you, Lisa, and I'm just thrilled to have a chance to speak to your audience.
Well, we are finishing out the show. And as always, we open up our inbox, which is one of your questions, one of our listeners. And today's is kind of short and sweet, and I'm going to actually answer it. So uh, our listener asks, how do you process when a significant other stops all communication after a long-term relationship? And uh, yeah, this is a hard one because it's like you're in a relationship because you're investing in it and all of a sudden it's like over. And that is a great grief, uh, sadness, something that you have to give pause and give time to. So, but the first thing I do need to state, which is kind of a hard truth, and that is if you have gone through a breakup and someone does not want to communicate with you, that is their right. And so... (laughs) That's a hard pill to swallow sometimes, but it really is their right. You know, no, no one is obligated to maintain communication. Again, that's the whole purpose of dating is you're figuring this thing out, seeing if it's going to go anywhere, seeing if it has a future to it. And if it doesn't, it is okay for that person, if it's right for them to just move on and feel like, um, yeah, I'm not going to continue this. And so maybe having that frame of mind is going to be helpful for you to begin with, hopefully, because, you know, that allows you to just say, okay, this is normal. This is healthy. Um, That said, it's a really hard thing to reconcile because this was a person you were dating. And now it's just kind of like there's this person out in the world wandering around who used to be in a relationship with you. And it seems artificial and weird to think that, nope, we're just breaking it off completely. But I I would say if that is your reality, if that's something that is happening, um, first of all, it's okay to just say that that's a hard thing and it's okay to grieve that. And in that, I would recommend just spending some time in prayer and turning that over to the Lord. We know that in the Psalms and beyond, God is very eager to take our burdens upon himself. Um, we even know that in, in Matthew, he tells us to cast our cares on him. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And so I think that's something good for us to remember that we don't have to walk through the sadness of this void in our life alone. Um, You know, also, I think you have to realize that you are going to um, have to give it time, Uh, time, including other friends in your space and in your life, being about other things in your life. Those things are going to help you as well. Because again, remember, you are not defined by this person. You were not defined by this relationship. You are your own person. And I think that uh, as someone who actually did kind of go through this, I um, have on a couple of past relationships completely lost contact with that person. And I can honestly say that walking through that and giving it time and allowing the months and eventually even the years to roll by is going to be ultimately helpful for you. But it's also helpful to lean into it, recognize that it's going to be a hard season. You're going to have to be about other things and be willing to grow in other ways. And you will see that God will be faithful and he will show up for you in that. And so, of course, um, we are rooting for you here at Boundless. We know that there are many people listening who have walked through this and probably have yet to walk through this. And so be encouraged. You're not alone in this, um, but processing is key. And again, um, leaning into those other relationships that you have first and foremost with the Lord himself. So... Well, I hope that's been helpful to you. Everyone else who is listening, uh, as always, we do want to hear from you. So write to us at editor at boundless.org. 
and maybe we can answer your question in the future. You can also go to Boundless.org and search uh, for questions we may have answered in the past, and hopefully they will be helpful to you. Otherwise, I will see you around next week. This is Lisa Anderson for The Boundless Show. The Boundless Show is a production of Boundless.org. Focus on the family.